0: Well, the struggling United States Football League is resorting to what some are calling the long bomb in court, an antitrust suit against the National Football League. Nick Charles is here That's with right. all the details. Don, the action is not on the field tonight. The lawsuit is large and lengthy, though. The USFL suing the NFL for a total of $1.32 billion. It accuses the older established league of two things. First, conspiracy to put the USFL out of business. Secondly, unfair monopoly of network television. Stadia to play the games in, player contracts. And even media relations. USFL attorney Roy Cohn said Thursday, the NFL has violated antitrust law by monopolizing every vital aspect of the game. Tie up three networks when they dictate to you, you can't play football when the fans want you to play football. When they tie up stadiums with leases, uh, so you have no place to play, the NFL owners each made $14 million from television revenue last year, the USFL less than $2 million. NFL teams average almost a $1 million in profit, USFL teams lose $3.5 million apiece. So is this action akin to a drowning man grabbing at razor-sharp knives to stay afloat? Donald Trump, who owns the New Jersey Generals of the USFL and represented the owners, answered this way. I think we have an excellent lawsuit. We have a case of a total monopoly by the NFL, and we expect to be successful in court. We're not doing this for any other reason. The NFL has reserved comment on the issues, but Commissioner Pete Rozelle did say Thursday, quote, This suit is a transparent effort to interfere with our season and delay the blame for the USFL's well-known problems and failures at someone else's doorstep, end quote. But the USFL says the NFL has been busy with a conspiracy committee whose only aim was to bury the new league. They just put every roadblock in your way which they can do by virtue of their economic muscle. And that is exactly what the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Act say if you do it. You pay trouble damages to the people who suffer as a result of your doing it. So the USFL will play this spring, but they voted to move to the fall in 1986, competing directly with the NFL, but Cohn argues the... uh the league is, is committed to uh, the, the, the uh, football, the networks are committed to, to the uh, NFL at the exclusion of his client. Finally, the cast of characters is appealing as well. The mighty uh, Pete Rosell on one side, USFL commissioner Chet Sam- Simmons, a former network sports executive. Roy Cohn, chief counsel for the late Senator Joseph McCarthy Senate panel. And there's even father against son, Edward DiBartolo, senior of the USFL Pittsburgh franchise, is in effect suing son Edward, who is presently president and owner of the NFL 49ers so the plot is already thick and they haven't even gone to court yet
1: welcome to good seats still available a curious little
2: podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports here's your host tim hanlon hey now everybody what's going on how are you thank you so much for finding us my name is tim hanlon indeed and this is good seats still available that curious little podcast devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And boy, oh boy, what a humdinger we have for you today. Uh, The clip that you just heard uh, is from uh, a CNN uh, uh, broadcast featuring the uh, late Nick Charles, uh, a tremendous and underrated uh, sports uh, uh, journalist and broadcaster, by the way, uh, that uh, came on October 17th, 1984, which is the Uh, the day that the United States Football League, otherwise known as the USFL, uh, continued its wacky journey uh, by declaring uh, or filing an antitrust suit against the uh, NFL uh, for restraint of trade and and a whole bunch of other things, and set in motion a uh, a completely uh, dramatic and uh, uh, chaotic and curious uh, plan of attack uh, after uh, running uh, in the spring the USFL, uh, in uh, the years of uh, 1983 and 1984. Uh, and um, it is a it is a multi-layered story. Uh, it is an unbelievable story. Uh, it only transpired uh, in a, a short period of time in the early 1980s, uh, roughly on the field from 1983 to 1985 or so. Uh, but uh, it was probably one of the uh, sort of uh, most dramatic moments in the very short, wild and absolutely insane, history uh, of this Challenger Football League known as the USFL. And we're going to get into it with our guest this week, our special guest this week, Jeff Perlman. He, the author of the brand new book, literally, we're dropping this episode, I think, what, on September 10th? Uh, his book officially comes out tomorrow, but uh, if you're hearing it here on the 10th, you could pre-order it a day ahead. It won't kill you to do so. Uh, but I suspect that most of you will be listening to the show after it indeed is available. It is called Football for a Buck. The crazy rise and the crazier demise of the USFL, and uh, many of you in sports uh, uh, circles know Jeff Perlman's work, uh, Sports Illustrated, and a whole bunch of uh, great sports books, Gunslinger, the story of uh, Brett Favre. It is, uh, you know, he's a very well-regarded uh, writer in many uh, aspects of uh, of the, the re- in the realm of sports. But unlike a lot of those other books, um, and as you'll hear in our conversation with Jeff. Uh, This is very much a labor of love and uh, a pretty good uh, uh, story in and of itself about him and as a kid uh, falling in love for whatever reasons uh, around this team uh, that kind of burst on the scene in the early 1980s, known as the United States Football League. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's going to be a very interesting uh, next couple of weeks and months as this book sort of permeates the, uh, the landscape. And I will tell you, I've read. About three quarters of it already, and it is just an absolute hoot. You don't have to be a fan or a nerd uh, of the old USFL or the stats and all that kind of stuff to to appreciate the uh, the narrative and just the absolute craziness and the stories uh, that come out of this. Uh, and of course, you know we've uh, we've spent a couple of uh, previous episodes with our uh, our friends uh, Bob Moore, uh, the former uh, public relations chief for the uh, Philadelphia, then Baltimore Stars. And of course, our episode with uh, Paul Reiths, who uh, wrote the uh, uh, the book that came out last year, sort of the uh, seminal sort of statistical and uh, and background history of the USFL. Those are both very worthwhile episodes, and maybe even uh, some good fodder to listen to either before or after this one. Uh, but uh, this uh, this book, I, I you know, I, I it's it's a little early to sort of compare it to. Uh, seminal works like Terry Pluto's Loose Balls and his account or oral history, if you will, of the ABA or or even Jim Bouton's uh, Ball Four, which is uh, arguably one of the best sort of sort of personal remembrances uh, that sort of fits into our genre, that the Seattle pilots of, of Major League Baseball that one year in 1969. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I think it's got a good shot at sort of uh, uh, rising to that level on your bookshelf, uh, and uh, it is it's it's a great read. And again, you don't have to be a fan or even knowledgeable about the USFL. And there are just so many storylines. We don't even get to the to the heart of of most of them. But uh, I think you will enjoy this conversation with uh, with Jeff Perlman uh, in a couple of seconds about the USFL. And uh, uh, it, it is a, it is a is a humdinger of of, a, of an interview and certainly a topic. And uh, and again, I can't highly uh, encourage you to find and read and devour this uh, this new book of his. Uh, and you'll see why in a couple of seconds with our chat uh, with Jeff. But let me get a couple of uh, promotional things out of the way. You know we got to pay some bills uh, here at this place to keep this show up and running, and we appreciate uh, you uh, taking uh, some consideration for some of our sponsors and maybe even uh, partaking in some of their wares. Uh, one of those wares or places is SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, it is uh, the A quintessential location on the uh, World Wide Web, that interwebs thing uh, to find all kinds of uh, memorabilia, some uh, lasting memories, uh, mementos, if you will, from teams and leagues that uh, either are previously incarnated or like the USFL don't exist anymore. And you're going to find a whole hefty bunch of stuff uh, from the old USFL, among other things and other leagues and other teams at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, I guarantee you're going to find some fun stuff. It's a hell of a joy to just look at the stuff. Uh, but uh, I suspect that you will be uh, entranced and enticed by a f- more than a few of the items. And when you do, and when you just uh, can't bear to keep that wallet in your pocket anymore and pull out that credit card, well, when you go to the uh, the checkout, make sure that you use that promo code that we're going to give you right now called Good Seats. Yep, that's the promo code, Good Seats, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And you will get... 15% off all of your purchases. So what are you waiting for? SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Why don't you open up that browser while you're listening to the show and check out some Houston Gambler stuff or maybe some Washington Federal stuff or or the Portland, no, the Boston, no, the New Orleans Breakers. Find something from one of those incarnations, et cetera, and there is are just tons more for you to find and enjoy there at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code GOODSEATS, 15% off. Do it early, do it often, do it now. And then once you're done there, of course, you want to skip over to our other friends. It's oldschoolshirts.com. Oldschoolshirts.com is the uh, place to find great t-shirt garb for all of uh, a whole bunch of uh, teams, leagues, logos. Hell, even stadiums uh, of of your uh, and uh, some even just other just cultural things like malls and stores and those kinds of things that don't exist anymore. Uh, Great imagery, great logos, great distressed look, high quality. I want to underline that. High quality T-shirts. Don't be uh, sort of uh, jaded or fooled by imitators out there with sort of the the cheap stuff. Oldschoolshirts.com. And uh, we've got a promo code for you to use there. It's called, it's also known as Good Seats. That's the promo code, Good Seats. One word, two words, doesn't matter. Uh, And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. And that's Oldschoolshirts.com. Give them a try. Give them a chance. And again, you will find a, 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 a plentitude uh, of USL, uh, excuse me, USFL stuff, he says, there as well. Again, OldSchoolShirts.com. We thank our friend uh, P.F. Wilson and uh, his team there. And make sure, again, use that promo code GOODSEAT to get your 10% off your purchases. Do that now. And then come back and listen, okay, finally, <laughs> to what we're going to get into with uh, our new friend, Jeff Perlman. Now, I do want to uh, sort of uh, underline here that uh, the uh, audio quality... Uh, of this uh, interview sort of kind of waxes and wanes, much like the league itself. Uh, We had a little, uh, a couple of hiccups with some, uh, some internet connections and some cell phone coverage and uh, a couple of uh, interruptions, but uh, hopefully we've smoothed those out. Uh, I uh, urge you to uh, intensely listen uh, the first few minutes may be sounding a little muffled because it's a cell phone, but we sort of uh, segue to a uh, a landline. But it's all good. It's all amazing. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation uh, with Jeff coming up right now. This is a personal project for you, isn't it? This USFL history thing.
3: Oh, yeah, very much. Very, very much. More than any other book I've read.
2: So uh, maybe a little bit of background as to, I mean, you're obviously uh, quite a... Uh, Stellar sports writer of uh, a lot of uh, uh, books, especially on football and, and uh, the, the Packers and uh, all those kinds of things. Right. What? What? Um, give me some. Give our audience a sense of uh, the I- initial inklings. I mean, don't give away the entire book because it's some really cool stuff, especially in the beginning of how you got this going. Uh, but then, sort of the uh, the wherewithal to uh, finally commit it to uh, an actual book uh, on the topic. I
3: mean, yeah. So I grew up in a small town in New York and uh, mailpack New York, and. I remember the US of I mean, there are things you remember vividly and things you seem to remember. And this I remember vividly. Um, my family did not, we subscribed to sport magazine, not sports illustrated, because nobody else in my family cared about sports except for me. So sport was a monthly, we didn't get SI even though I wanted to, but I would go to the mail pack public library and read sports illustrated. I remember being in the library one day and there was the new issue and there was Herschel Walker on the cover and in a New Jersey general's uniform. And you know, never worn before, so sparkling red and white and super crisp. And inside uh, it was an s i article about the USFL and there are all the helmets, so you know exploding suns and fish holding a lightning bolt and a you know a guy riding a horse, and you know with cool colors and like it just kind of blew my mind and And I just sort of fell in love with the u s f l as a kid. You know, it just seemed big and bold and different and unique. And they had Herschel Walker and they start getting other marquee sort of young players. And I just was hooked. I just was hooked. I don't even have a great reason. It was mainly the visuals of it all that really got me into it at first. And then when I was a senior in high school to fast forward a little in 1990, uh, Mr. Heights AP English class, we had to write our final paper. It was a 20 page paper about the subject of our choosing. And I decided to do uh, the USFL and the downfall of the USFL. the paper was called, and it was 40 pages. Um, which I'm sure I always think my teacher must have been like, "Uh, I could do without this. And uh, I just loved it. I just loved it. It's been a book in my head for a long time.
2: So what uh, what was the impetus recently then to actually pursue it as a book in terms of your career or timing? Uh, Was there an incident or some other thing that was just gnawing at you so much that you said, you know, now is the time? to actually go do this book and and commit it cuz cuz look the USFL we've had a couple of conversations on our podcast already um not a whole lot written thus far right a, a really good documentary uh, which i'm sure we'll stumble into in a couple of minutes uh there is the uh there is a a book out there that you do reference uh, called the uh the $1 league right which is uh, basically written by one of the PR people of the USFL and uh, our former guest Paul Reiths who's kind of written more of a uh, I guess, a, 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 a statistical survey, uh, and certainly very helpful in, in the entire sort of legacy of the league, but nothing really even approaching to uh, what you've done and you've committed to in, in this. So I'm curious as to why and how, because it sounds like you had a little bit of a challenge trying to convince a publisher that this was worthwhile.
3: Yeah, you know, what's interesting. You mentioned two books. The, the Jim Byrne book I read when I was a kid, and I loved. And a lot of people thought it was really kind of wonky and you know, too much about the owners. And I love that book. And the Paul Reeves book, which came out last year. I remember when I found out someone else was writing USFL book, I was like, Oh, you're kidding me. And, um, I love that book. He did a great job. It was much more for the USFL diehard than my book. Meaning there's a lot more sort of game coverage and a lot more kind of stuff that you have to be a diehard USFL fan, I think to really love. And I happen to be one. So I thought Paul did an amazing job at that book. Um, for me, I originally thought about doing a USFL book about nine years ago. I was, I was writing and it was just this topic I always thought would be fascinating. But um, you know, at the time, I'd only written like three books. And uh, maybe I was coming off the Roger Clemens book, which hadn't sold that well. And the USFL, like trying to convince a publisher that a book about a three-year spring football league from the 1980s uh, can sell is harder than you might think. You know, it's just hard to, to convince people they want big names and big topics and, um, something that's sort of timely. And there's no great time. There was no great timely elements of the USFL. But when I, I was pitching my fire book, uh, the Brett Favre book, and I had a couple of people bid on it. And I said to Hodden Mifflin, I said, what if I take a little less to do far than you've let me write this USFL book. And luckily I have an editor there, Susan Canavan, who, who bit. And she said, okay. And it's funny it had zero literally zero to do with Donald Trump in politics Donald Trump is president and then all of a sudden because he's here and because he kind of ruined the USFL it makes the timing much 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 more interesting and promotionally kind of complicated because all of a sudden you're not just talking about a sports book you're talking about a political sort of prologue and it's it's you know it's become a lot of different things
2: well, let, let's get it. Let's get into that. You know, obviously, that's kind of one of the big exclamation points of the story. Right. And by the way, you know, if you've been living under a rock. Right. I mean, you know, Donald Trump was was part of the USFL ownership. But look, there's probably a whole generation of people out there, younger kids uh, who kind of don't even know all of this. Right. So I think it is timely. Uh, and uh, and there are parallels, which uh, you have been uh, very vociferous with on, on, on social media. But but it's it's hard to ignore it. Right. I mean, it's it's literally almost a. Uh, a microcosm of what uh, arguably uh, is uh, much more writ large today, for better or for worse, right? But the the evidence, or the I don't know, the inclinations and or the personalities and the behaviors, right? Uh, very very uh, pronounced, uh, you know, in in this story. How did you how did you approach doing this book? The I'm really interested, I guess, in okay. So you got the commitment. That's great. This is a you know a long time, uh, childhood uh, uh, inspired. Uh, passion for you. How do you begin the process of, you know, getting this book together? Like, how do you approach it? Who do you find? How do you, uh, what is your method, I guess, to sort of get this going?
3: I mean, a few things I did. One thing I did differently than other books is I put out on Twitter immediately that I was working on a USFL book and social media because um, I only had a year to do this book because of the money. I did not get paid a lot to do this book, so I couldn't take three years or two years to do it. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to see it, get as much help as I can and also try to get people into the idea. Um, so I put out pretty early on, and I started getting some response. From, oh, my uncle played in the USFL, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, one of the early things I did is I, I went on eBay and I found all the old USFL media guides. And I bought, I probably owned every team's media guide from at least one of the years, if not all three. And then um, and you start going through person by person by person, making a word file for them, trying to find them. Uh, hopefully, finding them. Maybe they know somewhere else. Or you do a Google search and you find out, you know, former gunslinger, defensive bath, Pete Rayford is now a college coach. You call the college and you leave a message for him, you know, that, that sort of thing. And you just call and call and call. And at the same time, I'm digging through the Sports Illustrated Library, which luckily I worked there, so they let me use, uh, going through all old USFL clips. I'm reading every book that even hints at the USFL, the $1 league, Paul's book. Uh, you know, million, the the annuals that the USFL used to put out by the sporting news. And these just at the same time, you're digging, you're taking notes, you're interviewing people, you're comparing notes. Um, and it's all this big whirlwind of crazy USFL activity all at the same
2: time. How do you, though, prevent, and we'll get into this, the story of it in a minute, but how do you prevent going down... I got to think, numerous rabbit holes, right? Especially like a YouTube, right? When you see clips of Keith Jackson and all the games. I mean, how do you prevent yourself from sitting there watching the entire games and 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 almost going back to your childhood memories and, and sort of reveling in them without, or do you kind of throw it in that sort of proverbial bucket called research and uh, and just chalk it up, yeah. I got to do this?
3: No, it's part of the best part of it is watching those clips. I mean, I've watched the opening quarter of, of the first USFL game was the Chicago Blitz visiting the Washington Federals a gazillion times by now because I just find it so funny. Um, George Allen, the head coach of the Blitz, sent two of his assistants to Washington dressed in USFL windbreakers with cameras and lied to them, had them lie to the Federals that they were with the USFL and they were taking video for the league. And they actually, they're actually Blitz employees videotaping the Federals' practices. So the first play of the game is Kim McCrookin handing off to Craig James on a sweep. And Craig James getting smothered by the blitz defense. And now with the hindsight, you realize they knew everything that was being thrown at them because they cheated. I love that. I love watching the videos. I love knowing the inside. I love seeing whoever Danny Buggs making a catch for, for Tampa Bay. And oh, I, I talked to that guy two days ago. That's so cool. I get his story. So the videos are all part of it. And you never really immersed. It's hyper immerse yourself in the subject. It's, it's all joy. It really is.
2: So. Process right. So, how do you prevent yourself from going down these rabbit holes of YouTube games and, you know, in the internet age, right? It's very hard, I think, to be disciplined as a uh, as a writer and as a researcher to get to that writing, right? Because there's just so much stuff. It seems to keep coming and coming, especially aided right. and abetted by social media.
3: Right. I um. I mean, the hard part is actually these days is you're always checking Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever, and it, it does distract you, but. I just love going down the rabbit hole of the USFL. I really do. I love reading old clips on newspapers.com about the Pittsburgh Maulers signing Mike Rozier, you know, two guys getting in a fight or whatever. I love watching the old videos. I love the USFL highlight show. This is the USFL. Um, it all just adds to it. It makes it, it enriches the experience. You know, if you're not, you know, you just become obsessed with the subject. If you're doing it well, when I know I'm really into a book, I become hyper-obsessed. And that's, I think, that's a good thing. I mean, it may not be healthy for your marriage or for raising your kids, but it's healthy in the process of writing a book. So, I just became hyper obsessed by the USFL, and I made it all work. I would be writing and watching videos at the same time. I'd be watching Federals Blitz or Outlaws, uh, Gun Singers, and you know, loving the sound of Keith Jackson and Lynn Swan talking about the game. Or I just, I just loved it. I just loved it. That, that's a quick answer. I just
2: loved it. All right. So, so setting up the narrative, then, how did you? How did you think that this story would be held together? Right. I mean, you mentioned perhaps one of the exclamation points near the end, right? Um, but is it is it a a chronology approach? Is it a you know a thematic story that gets uh, uh, buttressed by certain individuals that exhibit similar uh, themes in their their respective uh, experiences in the league? How, how do you even approach to, to framing what this story is going to be become?
3: So it's kind of like a. Uh kind of like a tree with a lot of branches and there's a chronological obviously the, the key thing is there's a chronological element to it which is 83, 80, 82 83, 84 85, 86 alright so you have this order the league is sort of agreed upon the owners they find the owners they start signing players first season second season third season dies so you have that and then you basically branch off of it you know like alright we have this league we're going to start drafting players oh Herschel Walker decides he's going to turn. There's a branch right there. Um, we have the first few games. The the Washington, the Chicago Blitz are spying on the Washington Federals. There's a branch there. So you're just like you're always adhering. You're always going straight ahead, meaning you're you're going in this chronology. But you'll turn left for a little bit and come back to the chronology. Turn right, come back to the chronology. Maybe you'll group a bunch of events together. Like in 1984, in the lead up to the season. Uh, the Pittsburgh Maulers signed Mike Rozier, the Heisman Trophy winner from Nebraska. The Oklahoma Outlaw signed Doug Williams from the Buccaneers. Steve Young signed with the LA Express. Uh, Joe Cribb signed with the Birmingham Stands away from the Buffalo Bills. Like there are all these big signings. So maybe you group those all together as a little off ramp from 1984. But then you come right back to it. And the thing also that's important is, um and you, you, it's easy to forget. Like the games are not that important. The action itself is not very important. Most people reading this book do not care about, you know, Jimmy Smith catching a 30-yard touchdown pass from Cliff Stout. I do, but most people don't. So you don't want to get too uh, embedded with the action of games from 30 years ago, because generally that's the least important part.
2: No, I, I will I will tell our audience, this book is, is eminently accessible. If you're a sports fan generally, uh, perhaps you were alive during this period of time, or maybe not even, and – uh, just as a pop culture sort of reference, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, I your uh, the, the liner notes from your uh, PR people uh, kind of uh, connote it or equate it with uh, perhaps the seminal works of the ABA with Terry Pluto's Loose Balls and uh, and Jim Bouton's Ball Four for for M- Major League Baseball, the Seattle Pilots, uh, and having basically plowed through about half of this book last night. um I don't disagree. Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty seminal. I mean, it's a it's a rollicking story with lots of branches like you're talking about, but it's also uh, it's also uh, it's historically, uh, you know, in pattern so that people can actually learn and find out. it. So I think I think lots of folks, both the sort of completists diehards that that were there and do remember uh, those uh, particular uh, nuances and, and the games and all that kind of stuff, but also just the sports fan in general who either wasn't paying attention or or maybe have a fleeting recollection and just to, to realize that, Oh my God, there was, I didn't know all of this stuff. And maybe even in the framework of today's modern presidency, right?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned loose balls. Like if there, I'm not saying there is, um, if there were like a companion book to loose balls, this is that kind of thing. You know, I'm not saying I read loose balls. Loose balls is so good and so ridiculously entertaining. Um, but I did think about that book. And that book is more of an oral history. It pretty much is an oral history. That's true. I thought about that book a lot uh, when I was writing this book. Um,
2: so, and Were you, were you tempted true. to go the oral history route, or did you feel that a narrative was more easily achievable?
3: I think if I had not read Loose Balls, I might have possibly gone oral history. I've never done that, but I might have. But I felt like that would be such a deliberate sort of—I mean, Terry Pluto did that so well, and it was so original— to come along and sort of do part two of a football league and copy his approach, I didn't feel that great about, so I decided not to. All
2: right, well, let's let's get into a couple of things about the about the USFL itself. It's USFL itself, he says. Um, and actually, something that I didn't really even know. And I'm wondering now. I'm now this is showing my naivete, but you're you're the uh, super fan and and uh, expert author, right? Um, on page eight, you uh, you call a little story about uh, a one young brash Donald Trump. Uh, A couple of years before he enters as the New York, excuse me, as the New Jersey general's uh, actual owner in 83. Um, Is this a new piece of information or was this kind of I didn't even know about sort of this preamble, so to speak, about sort of his pre-involvement or non-involvement, even before the general's uh, uh, ownership thing happened a, a couple of years after the league got going.
3: If it's known, it's not very well known. I don't remember where I got it, if it was from an interview or I don't know, I don't know if it was in Paul's book or not, but it's it's very unknown. And in fact, you know, when when Trump sort of showed an interest in eighty four in being an owner, or late eighty three, uh, Chet Simmons, the commissioner of the league, sent someone to the public library to do a thorough background search on Trump and his holdings and blah 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 and what was written about him. So I don't think that much was known about Trump, even within the USFL at that point. They thought he was going to be the owner of the New Jersey franchise early on. He just called in when they were supposed to be at a meeting and said, yeah, sorry, guys, not going to do it. Um, but then he came back a year later because he saw something that he liked. But I don't know how well known it is. I feel good about it.
2: No, that's great. So um, when what is give me a sense of uh, what you think the... uh the, the mindset is as this league gets going. I mean, I think one of the themes that sort of pops out pretty quickly uh, in this narrative is deep pockets and large egos. I think, as a matter of fact, that's even sort of a mantra of of some of the the owners or the guiders, if you will, of this sort of idea. But is it is it too easy or facile to sort of put the ownership group and their mindset uh, while putting this together as simply that of? big boys and their toys, but it seems like it's a common theme, however, with just about everybody who played here.
3: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, some of the pockets weren't as deep as people originally thought, and that was a little bit of an issue. Um, I think the idea was that guys were, they all knew they were going to lose money in this, or at least they were told they were going to lose money at the beginning. You're not going to make money your first year. Uh, you got to spend money to make money. Um, I just think there's something, I mean, it's not just with the U.S. about it. there's something really appealing to large egos about owning sports franchises or something appealing about being cheered by a stadium with 60,000 people as you address them as opening day. You know, it's, it's appealing to be, to do what Jerry Jones does very publicly, walk through the locker room, have these superstar uber famous athletes calling you Mr. Jones or Mr. Trump or whatever it may be like the appeal of pro sports, even though so many times in the past, it has not made money. uh, And it's actually wound up hurting people. It's just irresistible, especially if you have an ego. It's irresistible.
2: Well, the original proposition of all this actually predated, you know, the league by a good almost twenty years, right? With with this uh, Don Dixon character out of New Orleans, right? And uh, it seems to me that, like a lot of things that we've discussed on the show uh, around challenger leagues and teams and whatnot, it's it always seems it seems to begin or rooted uh, uh, in uh, someone's, uh, shall we say, unrequited love for the. Uh, existing league and and perhaps not uh, for whatever reason able to break into the uh, the cabal and get their own franchise and and, and spurned they uh, decide to sort of go their own way Lamar Hunt being probably the classic example um,
3: yeah I was gonna say David Dixon's a classic example he uh, you know he wanted an NFL team in New Orleans he pitched the idea of the uh, you know bringing a team there he fought for a team there for a long time the NFL rejected him so he had this USFL idea we're gonna start our own league then the Saints came to New Orleans. And he killed it, but he never fully lost the idea. And he had two separate conversations, one with Paul Brown, where Paul Brown's like, this is a great idea, and one with George Allen, um, closer toward the 80s. And George Allen said, this is a tremendous idea. Do not give up on this. So, yeah, it started with just being sort of the NFL not showing interest, and then even when the NFL did show interest, he couldn't totally let go of the idea of spring football. All
2: right, so let's talk about the what is the cent- the central idea. It's spring football, but it's also – sensible approach to, to salaries and to, and to business, as well as what I think wound up becoming one of the hallmarks and maybe under, uh, appreciated hallmarks of, of how the league got going, sort of a regional focus, a regional structure uh, and appeal, uh, drafting and all that, right? Um, those yeah, are well, elements I mean, be, yeah.
3: no, I was going to say, they, uh, the whole the thing they were doing that I thought was really smart and still is smart uh, as far as an idea for a league is, so you're the Tampa Bay Bandits, where you have territorial schools. They so were gonna do, they did a regular draft, where you can draft them anywhere, but then you had territorial schools. So they would have a territorial draft and you could pick guys, you know, the Bandits would have, let's just say, Florida State, Florida, Bethune Cook, Albany State, and whoever else. You know, um, and then you, you, presumably, fans who loved, you know, whoever. John Reeves at Florida Well, now John Reeves is the starting quarterback for the Tampa Bay Bandits and you have this instant connection and you want to spend money to see him play as opposed to having the quarterback from Rutgers or Delaware or Nebraska playing for you. So I think, um, I think that was really smart. The other thing was there was a time when the NFL was kind of viewed as this sort of stilted, you know, and not that the personalities weren't shining and USFL was ready to just let their personalities shine. We're going to market the players. This isn't about the, you know, the owners. It isn't about the co. we're going to market players we're going to make them celebrities. If they want to dance, let them dance. If they want to do somersaults in the end zone, we want that. You know, we want fights on the field. We want, you know, it to be explosive. So they really saw themselves as almost like an anecdote to the boring NFL.
2: Well, the, obviously the lead up to getting the talent uh, going in, in this league was, you You, you do a very uh, excellent job of sort of uh, outlining sort of how some of the, um, I don't know, sort of the second tier, if you will, stars, or at least, you know, eyebrow-raising uh, capture of some of uh, of some of the talent uh, that wound up going into the USFL in the first year, but um, none more punctuated than the the I, who was it Charlie Steiner, the old uh, 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 New Jersey Generals radio voice was was it his term the nuclear bomb of Herschel Walker coming into the yeah
3: world? yeah it was a nuclear bomb it really was it was just a uh, you know it was like um, it's hard to imagine now with players coming out so early you know, and only really getting to know college players for a year or two. The what it was for Herschel Walker. First of all, how big of a star he was at the University of Georgia, where he was, you know, like a Greek god of college football. And then, you know, guys didn't come out on early back then. The NFL wouldn't take you. And here's Herschel Walker and he wants to come out. And the U S F L is this perfect all of a sudden this perfect opportunity and they're going to pay him a lot of money to do it. So the idea of Walker leaving college or especially a kid from Georgia playing for, you know, playing for the University of Georgia, the halfback number 34, Heisman Trophy winner. The idea that he would leave school early, leave his home state early to play in an upstart league. I mean, it seemed preposterous. And then it happened. And it was that was really the first time the NFL had to say, oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? If you'd asked anyone with the NFL, is Herschel Walker going to go to the other league? preposterous. Of course not. But he
2: did. But arguably, that was maybe more of sort of the, I don't know, I would call it the last straw, but certainly the something that kind of got everybody's attention. But, I, you know, it, it, and you outline this very, very well in the book. I mean, th- there was a, quiet, a lot of quality talent in the mix. I mean, from, you know, from the coaching side of things and George Allen with the Chicago Blitz. I mean, you, you sort of make allusions to almost sort of a uh, an exhaustive uh, tryout process, almost uh, methodical and uh, you know, maybe a little comical here and there, right? But almost NFL caliber in some regards. And you had, you know, a, a lot of, you know, uh, talent and coaching. And it wasn't, this was no fly-by-night kind of setup, right? It seems like there was real football logic behind a lot of the the early days of this thing to get this thing going.
3: Oh, 100%. I mean, you, all you have to do is look at the first USFL draft in 1983. And the first pick was Dan Marino. And the NFL was like, they're not t- Dan Marino is not signing with the USFL. And then he flies out to LA to meet with the Express, and it's like, oh crap, is he going to sign with the USFL? And he didn't, but the number two pick in the draft was Tim Spencer, the halfback from Ohio State. Tim Spencer would have been a top 15 NFL pick. He signs with the Chicago Blitz. Then you have Craig James of SMU, you know, Pony Express backfield with Eric Dickerson. That guy's not going to sign with the USFL. Signs with the Washington Federals. Um, Tremaine Johnson from Grambling, great wide receiver, you know, gone. The Michigan Panthers signed Bobby Aber, Anthony Carter, David Greenwood, the safety from Wisconsin. I mean, they just started loading up on really good college players where the NFL was like, oh, my, what is going on here? This is not supposed to be happening. Um, And then they start kind of slowly picking away some NFL players. And not amazing. You know, the first one where it was like, oh, this might be a problem, is the Chicago Blitz signed Greg Landry. And Greg Landry at the time was a quarterback in his mid-30s. You know, he was headed definitely toward the end of his career, but he was still a legit NFL player. And then Stan White for the Baltimore Colts, signs with the Blitz, too. Um, and they start getting these guys who are still OK NFL players. And they were picking the USFL over the NFL. And that was scary for the NFL also.
2: Well, look, too, it's also um, there was sort of a at least at that this point an even keeled kind of approach. Right. I mean, I think the franchises themselves were, what, maybe 50K, I guess, in terms of. But the uh, the support behind it, I mean, a, a credit line of a, of a million and a half bucks and. A commitment to, I think it was like something like six million bucks for operating expenses. I mean, that's, sure. you know, you're, you're talking about almost 10 million bucks to kind of even just, you know, in the first year. Um, You know, I think that's uh, uh, but it's also very interesting that uh, how quickly and we talked about this with Paul Reiths in the, their previous chat. Almost, uh, you know, after the, the end of the first season, relatively successful. It had a lot of benchmarks, right? It had a lot of uh, TV ratings benchmarks. And then the attendance was about where you know, 25000 or so where they thought it was going to be. Um, a bunch of owners, though, kind of somewhat headed for the doors, though, nonetheless.
3: Kind of cute. Yeah, well, they did. A, there was a real panic move, I thought, that if you look at the sort of trajectory of the USFL, um, wasn't wise, which is after one year, they, they expanded by six. So they went from 12 to 18 teams in one year. It's, it's a ridiculous idea in hindsight. And they did it because it was quick money. The franchise fee... Was, I think six million a team, so you're going to have this influx of money after some real losses the first year, expected losses, but still losses. So, um, but all of a sudden you have teams in San Antonio, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, markets that didn't quite make sense. Some of the markets were great. Jacksonville was great, uh, Memphis, very solid, Houston was great, but they just moved too fast because they got nervous. So they got, I think a lot of these owners, the idea of, okay, slow and steady, well, that, that sounded good. When you're actually losing money, it's not so easy to just sit there and say, okay, slow and steady, you know, so there was a lot of panic.
2: But it also feels like there was a bit of, a, even in this first season, right, a bit of a dichotomy between sort of, I don't want to call it the haves and the have-nots, but you know, for every, you know, successful Philadelphia stars or, you know, gigantic crowds in, uh, um, you know, in a number of these cities, you had you know, the Washington Federals, right? Which was, you know, almost uh, doomed from the start or or the, what quickly became a peripatetic franchise in the Breakers starting in Boston and frankly having, this is still many cases today, with New England Revolution, MLS, for example, having stadium problems, can't find a suitable place to play. Um, maybe you can talk about the highs and the lows of sort of that first season and maybe how evident some of those, uh, you know, ups and downs were.
3: Right. Well, I mean, part of the problem uh, was you just had a, just a wide disparity in the quality of operations between some of the franchises. The, Washington's a great example. Washington hired as their general manager Dick Myers, who had been Bobby Beathard's assistant with the Redskins, assistant GM. But Dick Myers wasn't a personnel guy. He was, a he was a financial guy. But the Federals really wanted to sign away a guy for the Redskins. So they signed him. Well, he was not a good general manager. He just wasn't. He didn't know personnel. Um, and they signed, you know, their quarterback, Joe Gilliam, had been Terry Bradshaw's backup in Pittsburgh years and years earlier. And by the time they got him, he was a guy with a real drug problem. And the Washington Federals led the league in guys with drug problems. One of their, their highest paid players was a, a guy, Bob Cobb, who used to play with the Rams. And Bob Cobb was he had a severe drug addiction and ended up dying of AIDS. And they had a lot of guys who just undisciplined. Uh, the names were good, but the quality of, you know, What they could bring to a team at that point was not good. Meanwhile, you know, the Philadelphia Stars, the general manager, Carl Peterson, worked for the Eagles. He had a deal with the, with the Eagles, where when they would cut players, they would call Peterson and tell him that there was a guy he should sign. Um, so the, the perfect, and, and Peterson knew enough guys that he had that connection with different teams. The the best example, to me, the greatest USFL success story is, you know, Sam Mills, who'd been cut by the Canadian League, and he was cut by the Cleveland Browns. And the Browns coach was Sam Rattigliano. He knew Peterson well. One day he calls Peterson and he goes, I, I got a guy you should sign. He's a five foot nine middle linebacker. And when you see him, you're not going to want him, but you have to see him play. Wait and watch him play and you'll want him. Sam Mills had been Montclair State Division three. He was teaching a photo at East Orange High School at the time. Uh, his football career seemed done. Peterson brings him in. He signs him like a $40,000 contract and Mills turns out to be the greatest success story in the U.S. of our history and a very borderline NFL Hall of Famer. Um, Peterson just had a nose. Peterson was smart. You know, uh, he signed the quarterback for the stars as Chuck Fusina. Chuck Fusina had a sort of Chad Pennington arm, but he was pinpoint accurate. He was, uh, he was a great leader. He was the runner up to the Heisman Trophy to Billy Sims, um, and he knew this guy was perfect for the team. So Peterson was really smart when he went after personnel and other teams were not so smart. And that was a big difference.
2: Yeah, it seems that and we talked about this with um uh Stars PR uh, head Bob Moore on a previous episode. Uh, yeah. It's pretty pretty clear that uh you know, Carl Peterson was is almost sort of uh, you know, one of uh, if you will the stars no pun, maybe pun uh of of this league, right in terms of his mm-hmm. uh capability his adept Uh, a a keen eye on sort of the process. And I think if I'm not mistaken, kind of the, you know, the master of this regional talent uh, approach that the, uh, the league wanted for their, uh, their particular city franchises, right. To keep it local or have some strong local ties. It seems like Peterson really bent over backwards to kind of sort of maximize that to his benefit.
3: Yeah. He was smart about it. And the Tampa Bay bandits were very smart about it too. The bandits went with a lot of Florida guys, Again, John Reeves was their quarterback, you know. They they were they wanted guys from the region. And, and, you know, Spurrier, Steve Spurrier, their head coach, had played at Florida. So he was an instant draw for Florida guys. And, um, and uh, Carl Peterson, again, he came from the Eagles. So he knew the area really, really well. Something I love about the Stars that's really fascinating is um, Jay Wright, the Villanova basketball coach, sold season ticket packages for the Stars. And he sat in a desk. And sitting across from him, in his partner in the in the operations for the stars, was Vinny Papale, from the former Eagle wide receiver. So US of Val was is all about there. So many strange bedfellows, you know. And those guys would go out on the town and just scout, 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 you know. Sign, sign, sign.
2: Yeah. Also, and a funny little asterisk, right? That uh, the stars, which you know, who were in the the championship game every every of the three years, um won the final championship in in 85 but uh as baltimore <laughs> but I, I oddly never played a game in baltimore
3: everyone went to baltimore they trained in philadelphia their games were in college park the only thing they had to do with baltimore was jim moore would take the train down every tuesday to hold his uh, sessions with the media so the only guy even to go to baltimore would be the pr guy and uh, jim moore jim moore excuse me to go talk with the media
2: well, okay, so give me some sense, right? So again, the the first year of the league, I mean, with Walker and you got all this talent, and and I think it 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 uh, either slightly beat or certainly uh, hit uh, uh, expectations. But you said there was a fear, or almost a, you know, uh, whether it is a you know either trying to keep, continue to capture this lightning in a bottle, or perhaps some early recognition that there was some, I don't know, say loosely foundational teams and and processes and people. Uh, involved. I mean many the 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 allure, right, of signing or getting uh six new franchises, right? Seems like from an outsider's perspective and maybe through an historical lens, a a money grab for cash uh which tends to often call out maybe the need for such, right? So do you think that that was what was fueling it or were they just trying to kind of go with the flow given the relatively solid success of the first year.
3: No, they panicked. You think they it was really panic? Panicked. Oh, 100% panic. It was panic. They lost money. They weren't comfortable losing money. These are guys who are successful businessmen. They did again, the idea of you're going to lose money, okay, I can deal with that, but actually doing it is terrifying. So, the expansion was a quick again, like this quick influx of money, but the guys they brought in the owner just weren't as deep-pocketed as a league needs to be and a lot of guys who should not have been owning sports franchises suddenly owning sports franchises and it really came back to bite them
2: all right we're gonna take a quick little pause here we got to pay some bills and uh look uh nobody you know likes living in the past uh, we do revel in it certainly when this little show Uh, And look, we certainly enjoy going back and remembering teams and leagues that don't exist anymore because they're just tremendous stories and and history there. We don't want to forget those. But, you know, we can't always live uh, in those times. We can't uh, sort of just roll around in nostalgia all day. We wouldn't get anything done in our lives now, would we? Uh, And in the realm of sports, come on, look, you know, uh, there's uh, so much going on. There's just a a plethora of of games and uh, events to watch and to follow and fantasy stuff and all that kind of stuff. And look, you know, we get all excited about that stuff. And we think we have a sense that uh, we're going to know who's going to win some of those games. When you have that sense, there's no better place to try your luck, shall we say, than by going to our friends, our new friends at MyBookie.com. Uh, their website's mybookie.ag and they're probably one of the best, if not the best online betting sites you're going to find uh, out there. And, and well-timed, shall we say, right, for the uh, the college and pro football seasons uh, that are upon us. And uh, of course, we have an incentive for you to give them a try. And that's uh, the promo code SEATS. Use that promo code SEATS at mybookie.ag and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. Yep, that basically means they're going to double Uh, the amounts you put in up to $1,000 by using that promo code SEATS. And that's mybookie, mybookie mybookie.ag. That's the specific URL to go to. And uh, again, you can choose from, uh, it's not just football, right? Obviously, football is a big time uh, uh, event for for your betting purposes, but uh, there's just about any sport under the sun that my bookie supports that's uh teams and leagues on the domestic front uh, internationally uh you can bet on fantasy uh, uh points and spreads uh you can even bet in game during the process of uh, of the actual match uh, it's all there for you at my bookie mybookie.ag and again use that promo code seats and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks give them a try my bookie it's mybookie.ag we thank them for their support of the show And uh, we wish you the best of luck, of course, in all your betting endeavors. Uh, And wish us luck as we continue our conversation right now. So give us a bit of a sense of some of the more shall we say, uh, comical attempts at franchises, right? Both the huh. expansion as well as maybe year two franchises coming back, maybe that shouldn't have. Uh, just to give our audience a sense of, besides some of the, the great franchises, some of the ones that are just, you know, so wobbly and comical that stand out. Yeah,
3: I mean, the best franchise in the US of that was the San Antonio Gunslingers because they were just nutjob crazy. And um, they uh, they were owned by this guy, Clinton Mangus, who was an oil man. And, uh, Texas. And, you know, I mean, the, be- the the best story that tells you everything you need to know about the craziness of goes about is a gun singers at lineman named Greg Fields. And he was, uh, he started the Baltimore Colts in 1979 as a rookie at a Grambling, um, cut by the Colts second year, goes to the Atlanta Falcons and is cut by the Falcons, refuses to leave his hotel room. Um, and they have to get an armed security guard to tell him to leave and bring a gun to get him out. He signs with the LA Express, plays with him in 1983, he has 12 and a half sacks in 18 games, pretty good. 84, they hire John Hado as their head coach. Hado decides he's going to cut Greg Fields. Uh, he calls him into the office, starts telling Greg Fields he's cutting. Greg Fields punches him in the face. Um, he's, you know, uh, yanked out of there. They have to hire a Liberace security guard away from Liberace, Nelson Mercado to guard the express facilities. The gunslingers need defensive line help. So knowing everything about Greg Fields, they still sign him. And when he reports to uh, San Antonio, he's greeted by the coaches all wearing uh, pads and helmets as a joke. Then, because the owner of the gunslingers, uh, Clint Mangus, has no money, he, um, he stops paying players. And one day, Greg Fields follows him home with a baseball bat. And when Clint Mangus gets out of his car, Field says, you're going to pay me. And Clint Mangus is like, uh, wait right here. Comes out with a bag filled with $10,000 in cash. Gives it to Greg Fields. We never see Greg Fields again. Like, the Gunsingers would sign everybody and anybody. And they, you know, Clint Mangus, the owner, hired all his friends to run the team. So you would have guys with important football positions whose experience, whose main experience was like, you know, they'd operated a feed store, you know, or they were a high school gym teacher. It was just crazy. So it was a, it was like the wild, wild west of football. It really was.
2: So where is Dixon in all of this, right? He's obviously been, you know, the person sort He's of— out.
3: He's out. He's out. He, he had a right—one of the things was as a founder, he had a right to a franchise or he could sell the rights. And he sold the rights after season one to Jerry Argovitz, who then founded the Houston Gamblers— he kind of wanted nothing to do with it after he started it. It was kind of weird. I think he saw where it was going and didn't feel that comfortable.
2: Yeah, because arguably he, was the, he could have been the voice of reason, you know, the idea of a, of a salary cap mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It seems that, I i don't know, maybe this is my uh, projection on this, but it almost seems like the whole Herschel Walker thing uh, was sort of the first sort of not only salvo for the league and getting its uh, you know attention to, in the sports world, but maybe the beginning of the end of the business model just right there.
3: I think so to a certain degree. Because it kind of blew it up. And they got, uh, I don't think signing Herschel Walker was a mistake. I think it gave him a lot of attention. But I think it set the stage for, we're just blowing this whole thing up. You know, we're just, we're doing what we got to do. And here, we're going to make an exception here. Well, once you make one exception, you can make a lot of exceptions. That's a real, that's a big problem. You know, and that's what they started
2: to do. Well, it seems like one of the things they did get right was television from the very earliest days. And right and Dan Dixon certainly very very solidly believe that that was uh, part of the not only the credibility for this league, but also as a revenue source. Do you want to? Uh, do you have any uh, sort of tales of sort of the uh, the television coverage in that? Because if you look back, uh, you you young whippersnappers out there, you just want to go take a look at YouTube and sort of see. You'll actually see these these broadcasts are actually very high quality. I mean, you mentioned Keith Jackson before, and uh, the production is uh, uh, very top notch. And ESPN covering, I think it was two games a week with. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember. Jim Simpson, uh, sort of basically, I think, was the lead anchor for for many of those games. It seems like it was well done, right? The the, the broadcasts hold up if you look at it on YouTube and stuff. And it's clearly that uh, that Dan Dixon had uh, television in mind, obviously from the original uh, proposition. It seems like that did pretty well for itself uh, as an advertisement for the league in terms of generating attention and and the quality of production. No, I think
3: so. I mean, um, the the two guys the main guys for the national broadcast were Lynn Swan and Keith Jackson and if you watch the broadcast Keith Jackson obviously is really really good and Lynn Swan is not very good uh, but he was young and kind of new and recently retired but that, yeah it was really good they had a uh, Mike Tolan who has since gone on to a really big career with films like uh, radio and he's done a lot of sports movies through the years um, he was running the uh, weekly highlight show he was like 24 years old he was doing the weekly highlight show this is US of also really good And they have, you know, they were on ESPN, they were on ABC. They made a really big mistake TV-wise by not having a blackout rule imposed. Um, And that really hurt attendance. Um, But yeah, they were rolling along. It wasn't perfect. There were a lot of mistakes. You interview some guys from the league who say the Trump lame is way too lazy, that they were making a lot of mistakes and the owners made a lot of mistakes. I think there's definitely some truth to that. And talk to other guys who say they dragged it down by going to the fall, you know, so there's a lot of blame to go around on that one.
2: All right. Well, let's let's get to one of the the, the crucial elements, right, uh, of sort of the success of the league, and frankly, what I think became big, the biggest fault line uh, of of management, uh, the owners, uh, was this, you know, I guess this uh, sort of abandonment of one of the key uh, essential tenets of the league, and that is of playing in the spring. That is not going, you know, directly with the big that—that that is the NFL, you know, the idea of expanding football to other parts of the year, uh, having that sort of area or that uh, part of the calendar to themselves, um, you know, with just, uh, you know, uh, why, where does this idea come from? I don't think it was just a simply that of Trump or or was he the original genesis of of that idea
3: to go, oh, move to, 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 go to go to fall? Yeah. No, that was a Trump idea. That was um he actually was the first one, he would he he started whispering the idea to newspapers. It's really weird. And in fact, you know how he um he has this fake publicist that became, you know, John Barron. Um he was using John Barron to call different newspapers and say Mr. Trump is really is one of many owners interested in moving to fall. And you can look back and read John Barron quoted in different newspapers. Um he was the one who put it out there and he kept saying you got Eddie Einhorn to show interest in the Chicago franchise because the Chicago franchise did terribly. It died after '84. And Eddie Einhorn was another guy, former White Sox exec, who um, was big into the idea of moving to Fog. They both guaranteed everyone they get these great TV deals. And they kind of preyed on the vulnerability of owners who hated losing money and weren't really comfortable with it, you know, even though initially they knew that would happen. So, um,. Yeah, Trump sort of stirred it up and stirred it up and we should move to fall. And he kept telling, he kept calling newspapers and, you know, Chet Simmons would open, the commissioner would open newspapers and see the USFL talking about moving to fall. And he'd be incredulous. What the hell are you talking about? And then he knew it, it was Trump putting it in there. And John Bassett, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, was sort of the the anti-Trump. And he really came to hate what Donald Trump was doing and hate Donald Trump. Because he was, just this, he was so dead set on moving to fall because he wanted an NFL franchise.
2: Well, that, that's sort of my next sort of question is, is, and it's hard to sort of get into the psyche of Donald J. Trump, but...
3: Not that hard. Not as well, deep as you would think, actually. Well, okay.
2: <laughs> so was this all rooted in a, just a desire to either merge or get a franchise in the NFL?
3: Yes, 100%. He, um, he won the Baltimore Colts. He tried in 1980. He failed. In 19, um, he buys the USFL franchise. He talks about how great spring is. As soon as he gets to the franchise, we need to move to fall. In 1984, he has a meeting with Pete Rozelle at the Pierre Hotel in New York with a room Trump paid for. He tells Trump he'll basically t- he's happy to sort of do whatever he needs to do to get in the NFL. If that means blowing off the USFL. If that means killing the USFL. Whatever he needs to do in to get an NFL team, he will do. Pete Rozelle tells him, you will never get an NFL team as long as I'm involved. Um, Trump desperately, desperately wants an NFL franchise. He sees it as sort of the old money. You know, he's new money. And he sees these guys, the Mara family, Rooney family, these classic American wealthy families, even the Debartelos, And he wants in. So after that all doesn't work, he sort of convinces everyone, we need to sue the NFL, antitrust lawsuit. We need to sue the NFL. And the whole idea was, and George Heddleston, who was the general manager of the Pittsburgh Maulers, told me, vividly recalled in a meeting, Trump talking about how he was going to have an NFL franchise. And, you know, the whole idea is we're going to sue. The NFL is going to see that we're suing. They're going to see we're hiring Roy Cohen as our attorney, and they're going to be terrified, and they're going to settle. And that settlement is going to involve a merger of some sorts. So Trump made all these promises. He led the lawsuit. If you look at all the press conferences back then, they're him with Roy Cohen. And um, they ended up suing. And they didn't call they, they were going to have a lot of people from the U.S about testify. They did not. Donald Trump was one of their star witnesses. Another one was a drunk Howard Cosell. another was Al Davis. And um, Trump was awful. I interviewed a jurist, one of the jurors, and she said,, um, "Trump was a nightmare. He came off. He made the NFL sympathetic. He was as arrogant, you know, bully on the witness stand. And ultimately, what the jury decided was, yes, the NFL had a monopoly. Yes, the USFL was correct. The NFL was monopolizing televised football. But the worst enemy of the USFL was the USFL itself. And therefore, um, they're going to win this suit. We're giving them a dollar. And that's how they won a dollar.
2: So the other sort of person in all this mixture, and you mentioned him just a minute ago, is is John Bassett, right? And a complicated story, right? The owner, uh, along with Mm -hmm. Burt Reynolds and others, uh, the Tampa Bay Bandits, and, and having actually had some history with you know, the previous major challenger. For the World Football League. Right. Yeah. And he was almost sort of the, I guess, the lead voice until that voice obviously sadly got extinguished um, from mm-hmm. his cancer, right? The uh, almost the sort of anti-Trump sort of brigade, right? It, is, is it fair to say that there were kind of two camps there and those were kind of the titular heads of them?
3: Yeah. Of? It's actually, you know, what's crazy in the past's prologue situation is, I really was thinking about this the other day, John McCain dies. He was one of the few Republicans these days willing to speak out against Donald Trump. Dies of brain cancer. Um, Trump shows very little sympathy and kind of just stomps all over him. John Bassett, late in the US of L run, diagnosed with brain cancer. The one guy who was willing to stand up to Trump. He gets sick. Trump shows almost no sympathy. Just sees it as a guy out of the way. It's actually a really spooky and kind of eerie parallel. And Bassett was the guy. Bassett knew Trump was wrong. He knew moving to the fall was an enormous mistake. He knew it, and he kept telling people, but people wanted the money. And there's something about Trump, prior to his credit, where he convinces people. It might be through bullying and just the persistence of message. It might be through making promises, whatever it is. Even teams where it made no sense to move to fall, like the Houston Gamblers, there was no logic to it. The Houston Oilers already existed you weren't going to have two pro football teams playing in the same season at the Astrodome. It made no sense. So, um, but they voted with it. Trump just had that sway about him. That was unbelievable.
2: So the one thing that, that, that is curious to me besides that, and the sort of when that plan is, is essentially, uh, agreed to, or at least a, a majority. So, and, and, and executed is this, um, this reality, this, this, uh, challenge of ending the season in 1985 in the spring, right or the, the early summer. Yeah. And then having to wait an interminable year plus, right? Yeah. In theory to start a fall season. I mean, I you you talk with at great length of sort of how, you know, teams sort of cut their players and sort of went in sort of a, a you know, protective mode and, and try to, you know, get outlay all or get rid of all their expenses and all that kind of stuff. But how could you even conceivably hope Right, to go after you know a championship season and then go basically away for a year plus, even while this lawsuit was going on, right because any kind of momentum you might have had right it was just it would just sort of float away, and it kind of did and only double down on this idea of the lawsuit maybe be saving the day
3: well it's it's actually really hard to explain what they were thinking in that regard. I think they were thinking the momentum of the lawsuit would pull them through and they'd be wealthy and be able to sign all these NFL players, and they'd build this hype, and maybe franchises would move around a little, or that's, you know, it was just poorly thought out. Sometimes we presume that people with a lot of money or a lot of success happen to have everything figured out, just like when we're kids we think our parents have it figured out, then you become a parent and you realize you have no idea. I just think a lot of it, especially with Trump and the move to fall, it just wasn't really thought of. It wasn't thought out of, uh, in any logical way whatsoever. It's kind of weird, actually. They really were their, their own worst enemy, the U.S. At L.
2: Do you sense that um, – so when when that the, the, the decision came down, right, it almost feels like – and the way you describe it, actually, almost sort of takes the uh, – sort of historically kind of puts it in perspective because there was that sort of period of time, very short, maybe even during the course of just a day, right, where, holy crap, we've been found guilty, the NFL has, right? And then the complete evisceration or large evisceration by such a puny, you know, award of damages. Um, Pyrrhic victory, right? But there's that sort of moment or a series of moments or a few hours maybe where the league, you know, the NFL has got to be truly, you know, shaken to its core. Uh, You you wonder what would have been had a, a real sort of significant money uh, award been been put on all this stuff. But I mean, how how can you describe it? Because I think it's it almost is indescribable. And in some of the, the quotes that you have in this book about sort of that day seem almost, I mean, I, I think it's still surreal to a lot of people who were, you know, in, in the middle of all of it.
3: Yeah. I mean, Chuck, Chuck Ficino, the Stars quarterback, was taking classes at La Salle, and the teacher interrupts a class to say, you guys just won the lawsuit. P. Roselle, was late to the courtroom, and he's driving, and he hears over the radio that the USFL won, and he has the car turn around to drive to the NFL offices. Um, it's one guy after that, after another. The uh, the Orlando uh, Predators general manager is in the office screaming. He can't believe it, jumping up and down. This is the greatest thing ever. And then the follow-up comes, and that's the craziest thing ever. I mean, Donald Trump is sitting in the courtroom next to one of the Maris. And when they announce the award, the, the guy takes a dollar out of his coat pocket and hands it to Donald Trump, like the biggest middle finger of all time to anybody. It, um, yeah, man, I mean, it was it was a moment, it, it's, it's like finding out you won the lottery and then finding out you, your lottery prize is three gumballs.
2: It's also interesting, too, that uh, there was obviously a strife, labor strife at the NFL around that time, right? Certainly in 87. Mm-hmm. Um sure. And you also wonder, too, had... You know, I guess in hindsight, right? But if if the league had still stayed as a spring league, uh, burnished its brand, uh, you know, obviously despite the losses, you wonder what could have happened, right, circa 87 when the players strike occurred on the NFL. You know, that that Mm. might have been a bit more leverage and or interesting opportunity because that would have been a place for people to play. And ironically, and ironically, 87, who where did where did a bunch of the talent come from the uh, replacement players?
3: Yeah, well, they, you know, they called the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the Scavengers, and John Reeves was their quarterback. You know, the, um, I'm trying to be San San Diego Chargers, Rick Neuhaizer was starting quarterback, uh, who had been with the Gunslingers. Um, Mike Conacy, who had been the quarterback of the Washington Federals, is now starting for the Chicago Bears. Um, on and on and on. The Houston Oilers, their starting receivers, were both the USFL receivers. And if you really want to talk about a legacy, and this is why I, just so happened, last week I was at the gym watching uh, highlights of the Washington Reds. I was watching Doug Williams' highlights, just because I'm a geek. And I was watching him against Denver in the Super Bowl. And he throws, um, he's an Oklahoma outlaw. He throws one touchdown to Calvin Bryant, former Philadelphia star. One touchdown to Gary Clark, Jacksonville Bull. One touchdown to Ricky Sanders, Houston Gambler. And the impact was just immense of the U.S. Event. And You think of what could have been in the number of high-quality players. It kind of bums me out.
2: So right, let's let so let's let's tackle that one uh, again, no pun to, to uh, on that, right? So you, there's a, a nice uh, quote that you have uh, in the book. I forget who it's with from. I think oh no, it's from uh, Dave Lapham, uh, one of the offensive linemen from the Generals. And I, I'll quote because I think this is it's apt, and you're kind of touching on it here. Here's what I don't understand: there are players and coaches from the USFL in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but the players don't mention the le- their plaques. Excuse me, don't mention the league. Were they not being paid? Did they not play in a professional league? For me, it's a lack of respect for a really great place to be a pro football player. Now, we've heard this, you know, I, we've talked about the WHA on this show and, and the NHL's sort of distance of that. There's the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame, which is reopening in a couple of months, and the somewhat arm's length uh, relationship, if any, with the old North American Soccer League, which arguably pioneered the sport professionally in this country. What do you, Where do you think the USFL's place is in today's modern NFL uh, and and it's it's history books and is it under not
3: okay it barely is it's a shame the average nfl player i I bet one percent maybe two percent of nfl players even though the u.s they might know it exists because of trump uh recently they don't know they don't know what it did to the salaries you know gave it bumped up the salaries in a huge way because all of a sudden guys had another option um i don't think most guys know i mean i think it's shameful i really do it's the pro football hall of fame so to me, a guy like Doug Flutie needs to be considered, not from his USFL, but from his Canadian days, combined with his NFL. Herschel Walker should definitely be considered. He's still the all-time single-season rushing leader. And his stats with the USFL combined are insane. I'm not saying you should weigh him the same. But Reggie White played two years with the, with the Memphis Showboats. Why is that not on his plaque? It makes him all the more impressive. It certainly puts Sam Mills. Sam Mills won two out of three USFL titles. If he's a borderline Hall of Famer, that puts him in. Um, I don't get it. I don't get it. And the NFL has never treated the USFL with much recognition or respect. Pro Football Hall of Fame is finally doing a small USFL exhibit this year after 30-something years. Um, it infuriates me. And the guys who played in that league, you know, the thing that sucked about it dying more than anything, it's not the Steve Youngs and the Jim Kellys, they were fine. They moved on. They had great careers. It all worked out. There are, you know, hundreds of guys from that league who are living their absolute dream, you know, meat and potato guys, uh, slightly undersized wide receivers, maybe a guy who's a little too slow or a guy whose arm strength isn't great, or a guy like Johnny Walden, the, the former Eagles backup who was starting for the Breakers, who was able to extend his career. And when that league died, their football lives died with it, uh, not to mention popcorn vendors and cheerleaders and general managers. And it's a, that, to me, is the saddest part of it all, is that you had this thing. It was great. It gave people these wonderful opportunities. And because of arrogance, greed, etc., it was taken away from them.
2: So why do you think people continue to challenge the NFL with yet more football leagues, right? We saw it with the original XFL. We've got two leagues, the Reborn XFL and the Alliance of American Football getting ready to start in the next year. And two, uh, the UFL, which kind of, you know, wasn't, you know, was there for a couple of moments. But why, why, what is it about the sport of football and or the NFL Uh, And, you know, I guess players' dreams and and I guess the the talent pool of of American football, that continues to get people hooked on the idea that pro football needs more than just a 32-team National Football League.
3: I mean, I'm staring at my kid right now. My kid is uh, 11 years old, and he's sitting there doing his homework, and he's wearing a Tennessee Titans jersey because he just loves football, and he loves the colors, and he loves the sights, and he loves the excitement. And there's something about football, not even just the game, the electricity of it all that has really tapped into America. And, I mean, from a business standpoint, the NFL makes a ton of money. So, you know, McDonald's started and then Burger King came along. We didn't need more hamburgers. But you see, oh, well, this is, if they're making money, we can make money off this too. I just think of all the sports football is the money maker in the world. If we can tap into that, if we can have one one-hundredth of the success the NFL is having— We're running a successful business too. So I just think like people love football. People always love football. I don't care what people say about kneeling or oversaturation. It's still this massive success in America. And I just think people want a taste of that.
2: All right. Give our audience one last question. And so going into this entire project and obviously looking through sort of the prism of your childhood and the the heiography of of, of those experiences in the league and, and then obviously what you learned in the process of putting this book together. Was there anything that you kind of sort of learned, and/or were uh, you know overwhelmed or impressed or depressed by uh, that that you didn't know before beginning this uh, sort of professional journey to put this in book form?
3: Okay, so here's what I would say: I took my son, who I just mentioned, Emmett, who's uh, he's 11 now, and I took him on a road trip to find Greg Fields, a defensive lineman from the Gunslingers, and um, and we found him. And we met him at a food court in Sacramento in a shopping mall. Um, And he looked back at the USFL and he really loved it. But what really I thought was striking was the profound sadness of a lost sort of dream. You know, I know I, I sort of touched on that earlier, but that's the thing that really sticks with me is like when you're given a taste of something that you didn't think you'd have and it lasts so quickly And it's taken away. There was one guy I interviewed who played for the uh, Portland Breakers. He told me he he has a picture of the team from the 1985 Breakers hanging over his computer at home. And he looks at it intentionally every single day because it reminds him of something. And looking at it, it doesn't just give him joy, it gives him joy and heartbreak because it was something so golden, but so, you know, so fleeting at the same time.
2: Well, look, I, I you know, uh, this show is devoted to these kinds of stories and stuff. And, and and in some respects, it's a bit of an oral history, too. We try to, to talk to direct participants in to the extent that they're still around and or remember and or want to talk about things. Uh, but, you know, we uh, it's like a lot of things. It's like old movies and actors and actresses and stuff. right? I mean, you know, once they pass away, you know, yeah, their, their works may still live on in, in uh, you know, in certain sort of media form. But um you know the stories sort of start to die away, and you know we we, we lose something in that. And I, I you know I you look at the USFL, it is indeed part of the fabric of arguably the most successful professional uh, game today in the United States. And to ignore it, to to not uh, remember and or relish in some of the uh, contributions, and right, we didn't even get to some of the rules uh, approaches and some of the sort of uh, you know the salary cap. I think in the NFL is was. was largely, uh, you know, a genesis from from the USFL-Dixon uh, plan. Um, but this is, you know, I, I hope this is a, a rediscovery for folks who may have fleeting memories of the league back in the early 80s and, frankly, a, an original discovery for a whole generation of folk who um, are probably going to be incredulous to know that these things and teams and people actually existed before they were even born.
3: Right. Well, I appreciate that. And I would, uh, I would also say strongly that that Paul Reese book from last year is also a very, very... Good and lovingly written USFL book. So, um, stud, there is there are things out there about the league, and I, I appreciate you letting me talk about it.
2: All right. So, one last thing here: give us some promotional goodness. Um, tell us the, the, the give us uh, give us all of it, and uh, what you're going to be doing, and where we're going to see you in the next couple of weeks as you uh, continue to promote this thing.
3: You know, JeffPerlman.com. I'm doing a countdown of the top 25 players in USFL history day by day. I, uh, you know, I uh, doing a lot of TV, and you know, you do a lot of radio. I, I just, you know. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Perlman, and just, you know, helping spread the word, even if it's not about, people don't buy the book, they buy the book. It's just a great league, and it's worth remembering. So even if you go on YouTube and watch a Gunslinger's Outlaws game, you're making a writer happy.
2: Alrighty righty, then that's uh, uh, that is uh, our our new friend Jeff Perlman, and uh, you will probably be hearing him early and often on your airwaves uh, and uh, in various other promotional uh, locations uh, in the weeks to come. This is uh, one hell of a read. Uh, it is called Football for a Buck, uh, the Crazy Rise and the Crazier Demise of the USFL. Uh, it is authored by our friend Jeff Perlman. Uh, he, the uh, New York Times best-selling author of. A number of sports books: The Bad Guys won, and Showtime, and uh, Gunslinger about Brett Favre, Sweetness, uh, Boys Will Be Boys. Uh, but this one, you know, as you can hear, uh, is is a uh, passion play uh, of his, right? This is uh, a, a story that uh, goes back to his childhood, and uh, look, we did not even scratch truly the surface of some of the uh, uh, incredible stories uh, around this league. Uh, and uh, its, uh, its legacy, its ongoing uh, oddness with uh, even current events uh, with uh, Mr. Trump, for example, uh, among other things, the innovations. Um, it, but uh, it, this book uh, encapsulates uh, so many stories. Uh, it is true to uh, the sort of historical uh, uh, accuracy, but also the narrative and the people involved. And uh, you heard Jeff kind of say it earlier, you know, this is not a sort of a statistics kind of thing and sort of a game-by-game, blow-by-blow account of sort of what was going on in the field. Uh, there's just too much going on off the field uh, to, to not uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, call attention and, and sort of draw some uh, some narrative goodness from, uh, from all that. But again, the book, again, is called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Uh, it is published by uh, Houghton Mifflin, and uh, it is uh, well worth your time. Uh, to seek it out you can find uh a link to that book of course uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com just search up this episode with uh, with jeff perlman Uh, you'll see a link that uh, takes you to uh, to amazon Uh, you'll be doing us a little favor by uh, giving us a few shekels by buying the book through that link we appreciate you doing that and uh, i believe it's an audible audiobook or an audiobook that you can get on audible there's a sort of a way to buy it there. You, it's available on Kindle. I think there's uh, just about every sort of uh, manner by which this book is going to be distributed is available to you. So by all means, uh, click over to our website and click through uh, on the, our friends at Amazon. But of course, wherever you find good books is just as good as well. And uh, we want to see Jeff uh, succeed with this book. And I, 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 I'm virtually guaranteed that you're going to enjoy it uh, as thoroughly as I have thus far. And I, uh, I can't wait to finish it. Uh, in the, uh, in the coming days. What else? Let's see. We're going to uh, say thank you to uh, uh, Jerry Payne and friends at Podfly Productions. They are the uh, the folks, and he in particular, who put our pieces together and this week certainly put him through his paces with our little uh, technical uh, difficulties. Podfly.net. That's where you can find out about more podcasting uh, production uh, goodness from our friends at Podfly. If you're interested in doing the podcast thing or you could use some professional help or just some editing, uh, some tips, Podfly.net. Uh, check them out; you will be glad that you did. All right, we're going to leave you with a very fun uh, little uh, rap uh, video/song. It's actually a video that's on YouTube now. You can find it; just search for "football for a buck." Uh, but it is put together by a guy named Stephen. I think it's Ochoa. Uh, he's at at Stephen Ochoa, and uh, music and words are by MC White Owl. And uh, we're going to take you out with uh, this really cool, crazy little rap. Uh, that's uh, promotional for the book, and uh, it's just it's it's fun and and a hell of a listen too as well. So check it out on YouTube. And uh, until next week, we will see you with another fun-filled story. Thanks
1: for listening. It's the news that I need. It's the USFL football for buck, just another dream. Donald Trump screwed up the United States football league. Drugs, egos, money, greed, the truth. Why Trump hates the NFL He's a racist and a bigger And his tickets wouldn't sell A POTUS that can't even spell A story so absurd That's the USFL Dear Donald Trump, you filthy leech How many lies you gonna tell Before they impeach let me interject a bit. I don't want you to forget the tears, the fears, the blood, the sweat. A league full of winners remembered for lack of liquidity. When in reality, it was all your stupidity. A bunch of misfits. This fits perfectly well. Herschel Walker, Doug Flutie, and some names ring a bell. And Marcus that myself Battle the NFL. 83 to 85. It didn't end so well. 40 million reasons. It was over in three seasons. A young Steve Young. NFL had the legions before the comb over, before the Trump Towers, before Stormy Daniels. Before the golden showers, countless hours wasted, success never tasted, spring fling football, and promo went and traced it. USFL, football for a buck, just another dream, Donald Trump screwed up, the United States, football, league, drugs, egos, money, greed, the truth, why Trump hates the NFL, he's a racist and a bigger than his tickets wouldn't sell, a POTUS that can't even spell, a story so absurd, that's the USFL, the drugs Sex, the hookers the bars the players that became nfl stars the invaders the breakers the generals the blitz a league rewarding grown men with working chicks chicago for arizona what a crazy scheme arizona for chicago yes the whole team's different players out of money including reggie white players puking on coaches even in mid-flight through the nfl Donnie, you schmuck white hour jeff perlman football for a buck david dixon chet simmons Bobby Abear, Anthony Carter, Doug Williams, Brian Sight, Gary Anderson, Vaughn Johnson. He traded a whole team for a team. <laughs>